Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode 39. I am recording this in March. It's being released the first couple days of March. And there's no baby yet. So that means we have avoided the leap year baby. Thank God. So 38 and a half weeks now, and this really this kid is coming any day now. Uh, almost 39 weeks. And uh, every weekend that goes by allows us to do more and more prep. Uh, we have our hospital bags packed. We have the baby's room ready. The car seats and or bases are installed in both cars. And speaking of cars, um, we didn't realize it was necessarily going to happen, but we bought a new car. And it was a, the exact make and model that we wanted. So more on that coming up. Um, and one other miscellaneous thing I wanted to address. So Jen, my other half, my wife, my queen bee, she informed me that I was very accent heavy on the episode last week. So I don't know if other listeners noticed this. And uh, if you have, I really apologize. I thought I dropped the, the uh, rough New York accent 20 years ago. Um, I think maybe living back in the suburbs or being away from uh, regular dialogue with friends from other parts of the country, maybe it's it's crept back in. Um, but I'm going to blame the car dealerships. Uh, I think all the dealings with the car dealers locally, um, I've embodied the accent again. And I'm going to be very cognizant of this, not only on, on, on this episode, but just in life going forward. So uh, at least until I, I start doing my pop-offs on this episode and other episodes naturally. But on today's episode, um, I tackle a philosophical concept around death and birth, uh, rave about a state that I could easily live in unequivocally in addition to New York, uh, do a 2020 Democratic primary snapshot with Super Tuesday upon us, and I end with four pop-offs. So buckle up, episode 39. Here we go. All right, so... As my next born is on the verge of being here, uh, there's a lot to do and a lot to think about. And um, as both excitement and anxiety are swirling paradoxically in tandem all throughout my body, the world is carrying on as usual. And it had me thinking about a philosophical concept that I recently drew the conclusion um, of, and it's centered around life uh, both beginning and ending. And uh, so that means birth and death. And people have often said, you know, Jerry Seifeld had a bit in particular that the end of life and the beginning of the life are often analogous in a lot of ways. Your first, you know, things like your, your first birthday and your 91st or 95th birthday are kind of similar. You don't have a ton of mobility. You don't have a ton of say as to the guest list. People are telling you these are your friends. And you really don't know what the hell's going on. I mean, you, you, you just, even if you're really sharp as you age, you just don't tend to have that all your wits about you. You get tired, you have to take naps. Um, so there are a lot of an analogies in, in, a, in, a funny, in a funny sense. But beyond that, I was thinking it applies in another way. Now, my grandparents have all passed away at this point. But fortunately, three out of the four I got to meet. And I also had three out of those four into my adult life. So to me, that's a win with lifespan, at least by the standard over my life to date and looking at the, the generations that, that my grandparents were in, uh, being born in, in my, my maternal grandma, in the mid, my, my maternal grandparents in the early to mid-1910s and my uh, paternal grandparents in the early 1920s. Now, my, my, um, 
My mom's mom was the grandparent I was closest with. And she lived with us or within a mile of the house I was raised in for pretty much um, all of my life until she passed away in the year 2000. Now, when she passed, I felt tremendous sadness and mourned for a few weeks, maybe even even a, a month or two where I, I was just really, really sad. It was a heavy sadness that fortunately I've never felt, uh, I haven't yet felt yet. And, and death is something that inevitably we all have to deal with. Um, and, and, and unfortunately in life, it's backloaded typically um, as we age and as our loved ones age. But um, as far as my grandma goes, I mean, I missed her for many memories following the initial period of mourning that I had. And even now, you know, she's been dead almost 20 years. Um, I miss her as various life milestones happen. And even though it'd be unrealistic for her to be alive now, turning um, 106 years old this year, it's not it's not impossible, but just she probably would have you know passed away four more times between the time that she died on the doorstep of being eighty six and now um but yeah, I just think about all the different things that happened, like meeting my meeting Jen, um getting engaged to her, getting married, uh different job promotions I had, um being pregnant with Eloise, being pregnant now with her second um and having her just there's a lot of different things i I just wish she was around for um now, however, for my mom, uh, her daughter, uh, she was hit harder than, than anybody, um, at, at least in my direct line. Obviously, my aunt, my uncle, um, others, I'm sure, mourned her harder um, or, or har- harder, harder than, than even I did. But my mom was hit incredibly hard. And my grandma died July 13th of 2000, about two and a half months before my 19th birthday. And my mom was, was still very sad probably about six months or more later, maybe even like a year later. I mean, at one time she actually explained it very poignantly how she was feeling. And she said something along the lines of the world is carrying on as normal and living life um, in, in, in whatever way they live life. But to me, my life has a gaping hole and will never be the same. I'm paraphrasing, but she said something like that. And I think that applies to anybody losing a close loved one. But let's pivot away from death for a second to something a bit more positive and uplifting, and that's birth. Now, I think some of the same feelings apply conceptually for the people most affected by the pending birth, the two parents, maybe the, the, the grandparents that are around. But as my wife, Jen, and I go through the final days before delivery, um, sure, some good friends and even acquaintances are asking us about it, uh, other family members and wishing us luck. But plenty of others in our life, as expected, just don't give a shit. Uh, they care, you know, very very mild, you know, mildly about it. And as expected, they're carrying on with their days and routines and, lo- and you know, looking and talking about the future of the coming days and weeks as if it's just a regular day in March. Um, but obviously, it's a, it's a massive thing for, for us. And clients and, and colleagues of mine professionally asking for, for shit that, frankly, in the grand scheme of life, compared to incoming life, just isn't important. When you actually look at it, I mean, if work, people put so much into their work. Uh, their careers, and um, when you when I look back in twenty years, thirty years, forty years, fifty years, God willing, sixty years, at my the the birth of my kids, I mean that's all that matters. I mean, what, what all the other stuff around is just it's just noise. You know, let me be be clear. You know, I don't expect others to have the awareness of the the juxtaposition of of the normalcy of their lives and the and comparing to the tremendous anticipation of of me and Jen. Um, and, you know, this applies mostly to work. I mean, there, 
But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just forefront of my mind all the time. There's, there's, as I said, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of feelings of excitement, but there's also anxiety about the labor, about when it's going to happen, figuring out logistics. I mean, there's an eighty percent chance in the next ten days Jen goes into labor. You know, I have a couple of important meetings this week and a good deal of anxiety that the city where I work puts me all in about an hour plus from the time I get a text or a call that Jen is in labor and she's having contractions to being home to assist and drive her to the hospital and arrange for our daughter our daughter Eloise to be in the company of one set of grandparents. But um, yeah, it's just a stressful thing, man. I'm just thinking about it. Just wanted to, wanted, wanted to, to share that. So in conclusion, when it comes to Coming into this world and exiting this world, there are a lot of nuanced parallels, big, small, and everything in between. So coming up next, uh, car update. So last episode, um, I bemoaned the experience of buying a car, buying a car, leasing a car, whatever, and mentioned a really bad dealership experience we had that got exponentially worse. Um, as we had a couple more interactions with them. So this past Saturday, while Jen, my wife, and I had some downtime before being a family of four and having uh, Eloise, Eloise uh, elsewhere for several hours, uh, we scarfed down a few breakfast sandwiches in the car and decided to go into an alternative dealership for the make and car that we have been targeting. Now, the initial phone calls I had with the individuals that worked there were just a hundred fucking times better than Tony Boombots and his crew at the other one. I mean, literally, I mean, like, the experience is like night and day. So, so we drove um, about 20 minutes northeast into Stamford, Connecticut, and six long hours later, we had a new car. Uh, and to be specific, a, a new car for us, um, when, you're, when, when it comes to buying a car, I think where it's at is getting a, a certified pre-owned under warranty because the car depreciates just so quickly when you drive it off the lot. You're, you're pissing away money if you if you buy a brand new car. Uh, if you can afford it, great. But it, unless you really have, have are just well off in every area of life, uh, I just think uh, a pre-owned car that's a year old is the way to go or, or maybe two years old. But um, without getting into all of the minutiae, I've come to conclude that for us, buying a car is way preferred over leasing. Now, we were, you know, I'll give I'll give a key, some key some key reasons and, and some rationale uh, shortly. But we were able to sell our lease car to the dealership three months before the lease expired, take it off our hands, and buy a pre-owned 2019 that had one of our initial three desired extra features. But the number one feature that it had is is uh, is safety related, and that's the most important. You know, as I have precious cargo in the car between my wife, two daughters, and dog, uh, ultimately. But um, it's a seven-seater, and we wanted the captain chairs and a moonroof. I mean, those are the other two features that we wanted. And the reason why captain chairs are key is you have a couple of young kids who need car seats or boosters. So driving others around while, while without climbing like animals to the third row is key. And just having enough room to sit is key. Having a big enough cabin and thinking about the fact that Buying a car, leasing a car, you can't just think about this year and what the landscape is like. You know, having a, a toddler, a borderline preschooler, and a and an infant. Uh, but what I mean, you know, car buying experience is is uh, you have to you have to look really four, five, six years down the road. Will you own this car? And uh, when I think about you know how old my kids are going to be at that point, I mean, it's going to be just just peak carpooling. And um, so so that that was one of the reasons why Jen and I had to consider a seven seater. 
Um, so when it came to the, the as I mentioned, we, we wanted the captain shares, but we discovered that in spite of bench seats, this make and model offered an ability to slide the entire row forward while keeping the car seats intact. And it's a big, safe car with great features, relatively decent gas mileage uh, for a car of that size and, and a sleek color. So why do we walk out with a new car? Well, we wanted to get it done ideally before baby number two, but we weren't going to force it if it didn't financially make sense. But why we walked out with a car was because this dealership had a vibe from the sales manager on down to the youngster associated, uh, the, the youngster associate who was our, our main contact. And that's what it comes down to. It's like, how good is your experience? I mean, that, that, that could go with, with any place that you go in as a consumer. But for the slimy dealerships, it's so fucking transparent that they're just trying to fuck you. You know, Tony Boombas's dealership embodied this. And it was a turnoff as customers, especially well-researched customers, customers that, that aren't just going to piss away money, that really want to make sure that we're being very uh, deliberate, especially as our, as our, you know, we have to be very cognizant of our, of our spend with another, another kid coming into, into our, our, our lives, into the picture. But, it, but, you know, for Tony Bubats, I mean, if you want to operate that way, where you don't want to be collaborative and you treat every customer as some sort of sucker with no acumen for the pricing of cars and financial terms, you're just going to lose business. And it, it ain't an all-weather winning strategy. It just isn't. I mean, you're, you're, you're going you're to cast a net that's going to get some suckers, but like, you're going to leave people like a consumer like me with a bad taste in his mouth. That's very apt to write a negative review. In general, I think I, I have to spend some more time uh, you know, plugging the good reviews and the good customer experiences I have and, and really uh, holding the bad ones accountable. But our guys in Stanford at this dealership were, were terrific. They were great. And the financial paperwork software was down, which, which contributed to some of the delays. And, but if you haven't bought or leased a car, um, it's a process. And going back to another Seinfeld reference, the dealership episode is very relatable all the way down to the hunger that kicks in eventually. I mean, we're, we had a, a pretty sizable breakfast, but we were famished by the end of the day. Absolutely famished. And I, now I know why George Costanza lost it on the mechanic uh, with a short name, Ned or Ted, who stole his candy bar stuck in the vending machine. You get hungry, man. And uh, this, this, uh, the, the one negative thing I'll say about this dealership is they didn't have a freaking vending machine. You had to walk over to, to the gas station next door if you wanted to get anything to eat. And we ended up just waiting it out. But um, as far as this dealership goes, I mean, the sales manager at this dealership was just a fascinating guy. All right, check this out. Former Alabama Crimson Tide football player who has won two titles under Saban. He was an Army brat who uh, – these are just some – I'm just going to give you some of the, the highlights of this guy, just some bullet points about him. So I said former uh, Alabama Crimson Tide football player um, was an Army brat who lived in four or five countries. Um, when he went to Alabama initially, he was six foot 175 pounds and a three-sport athlete in high school. And he played on both sides of the ball, fluctuating his weight all the way between – 175 pounds and three bills. And that's just so hard to fathom. Um, you know, just being like, you know, I, I, weigh, I, I, I weigh about 100, 183 pounds. 180, if you want to, I'm being very exact because I know it, but 180, 185 pounds, uh, that's, that's really my, my fighting weight. Um, I'm just under six foot. I'm, I'm just under 5'11". Um, to, to, to fathom being 300 pounds, I mean, 
I, I, I have a hard time even just like when I was 195, I felt big. I mean, I can't even imagine being an extra 100, 100 pounds and change on top of that. But this guy, you know, he just, just really just fascinating. So, so six foot, 175, and a three sport athlete who fluctuated, uh, you know, 125, 130 pounds while he was playing football. Uh, college roommate of Dante Hightower of the Patriots. Diehard Cowboys fan who dislikes both Romo and Dak Prescott. Um, he actually is a is a sales manager at at this uh, car dealer, but he owns a luxury box which runs you um, thirty to forty k at AT and T Stadium in Jerry's World. Um, has a kid out of state, twenty seven years old. You know, I know he's a car salesman, but this info came out post sale, and I actually believe every word he said about about who he was. Um, but a really interesting guy, great guy to deal with. Fantastic at his job, just very, very smart. And for all the negative stereotypes around car dealerships, I mean, uh, I, I think this experience starts with somebody like like this guy at the helm, who's um, who's had a track record at other dealerships as well. But we are pumped to have this car. Uh, Jen and I got some Mexican food on the way back to pick up Eloise, um, and uh, all in just just a great day. And uh, quickly on just buying versus leasing a car. Just thrilled to be done with leasing and likely never doing it again. And here's why I prefer buying. Here's a few reasons. A few reasons. Number one, we we had historically, or, or since we moved out to the Burbs and we got cars and we, we, we first had one car, then we leased the second car. Um, but we owned a car and leased one. And it's such a bigger hassle dealing with the expiring lease. Um, especially if you're not tied to the make and model and don't think that you want to keep the make and model, don't know if you're, uh, or if you're not sure about it. I mean, these guys just try to haggle you. And I feel dealers are constantly trying to upsell you. Have you, have you uh, go into a, a much nicer car, but a more expensive lease. And if they keep on doing that on repeat every three years, you're going to be paying out, out, out your ass in a few years. Um, and when you own a car, um, you have the leverage versus a dealer w- with a lease. So that's reason number one. Number two, when you own a, a car, particularly a pre-owned, you're getting way more value long-term, especially if you're willing to hold the car for four to six years. Now, we know that the, the make and model that we, that we just bought this past weekend is practical for our family for the foreseeable future. So that's number two. And number three, when you pay it off, I mean, listen, a car is not a good asset. It depreciates incredibly quick, quick, quickly, but it's much easier to roll into payments for an even nicer car without more out-of-pocket. So you're, you're able to, to keep your payments level or even decrease your payments while getting incrementally nicer cars over the years. And you, you do that a few times, even if you're holding on to cars for five, six years, um, you know, you're going to put yourself at an advantage. And you can even have years of owning the car where you're done with your payments if you're able to, to, to deal with having, having that particular car and, and it being like seven, eight, nine years old or, and having it be like your second or third car. Shit. I mean, that's, that's an advantage. So those are the reasons for, for us why right now we've decided and that, that buying is just a better, better option than leasing for us. So coming up next, California love. So we live in the Northeast and specifically the New York metro area. Now, I've lived here for 34 and a half out of 38 and a half years of my life to date. Now, I spent... Four years, or at least nine out of the 12 months of those four years, down in Atlanta at Emory undergrad when I was in college. Now, those of you might know, and hopefully you do know the nickname, Hotlanta for Atlanta, um, which is appropriate, but really just speaks to the extreme temperatures coupled with the humidity the city and all the South experience May through September. It's not Hotlanta all year round. 
You know, Atlanta those other months has some solid weather for the most part. Um, outside of a few very short-lived fall or winter months, um, from thanks from Thanksgiving or even like mid-December until about early March. So you're talking about at a maximum three months of, uh, of of colder weather, and it's not even that cold. I mean, snow is rare. Below freezing temperatures aren't aren't at all commonplace, especially during the day. So outside of weather, um, as much as cities are progressive and welcoming for minorities, there's something uncomfortable to me by being absolutely surrounded by living in the South by rural counties with a history of oppression and racism and a lot of shit that's worse than that and a present day of racism or at the very least extreme discomfort to people of color. Now, one thing that has been apparent to me since my time in Atlanta um, with certainly better weather than New York is that warm weather just makes me happier. Now, I know most people prefer warm to cold, but my soul feels different in a warm weather environment. Taking it a step further, a coastal warm environment makes me incredibly happy and moves me to another level. So California, for me, checks a lot of boxes, and I fucking love California. Now, I didn't even make my first California trip uh, until age 18, when I was a freshman in college. And my dad, who spent uh, most of his career in transportation, had a conference out there. And uh, this is over my college winter break, and he flew out um, my and my brother was in eighth grade, and so it's just flew my family out there with, with him um, for about a, I guess about a week or so, and there was immediately something intriguing about it to me: the low humidity, the bright sunshine, uh, even the snazzy license plates with the white um, and cursive California writing got me intrigued right away. Now it took me another decade plus to get back in 2011 when I was 30, but I you know I, I formed a, a close friendship from college. And uh, a guy who was from there settled back in that area and subsequently made friends with, with this person's friends, um, a couple of which I actually am better friends with today than the original friend. That's what happens, I guess, as you get older. I, mean, I know we talk about the friend episode, but a lot of times you become friends with the friends of friends um, and have stronger friendships with, with, with those people even beyond the original friend. But anyway, over the past nine years, I made seven trips out to California, including five in a two-and-a-half-year span for, for uh, a bunch of weddings and some other, other occasions that brought me out there. And my wife, Jen, who didn't set foot out there for the first time until 2013, made trips for her corporate job out there close to monthly at one point, between 2013 and the beginning of 2016. And um, as we are in sync naturally about many preferences, California is no different. We both love California. Now, in 2017, when Eloise was a baby and neither of us were tethered to a job, um, we took a long, hard look at moving out there. And I even applied to a few jobs out there. And I ended up getting a job for a company that was, that was a great fit, um, based out of, the, out of um, the West Coast with a boss out West, but responsibilities on the East Coast. So right now, that's where we're at. And as we grow our family, um, our fa- and we grow our family roots here in New York, we have both sets of parents, um, minutes rather than hours away, a drive rather than a flight. Um, it could be challenging to move, but it's not at all out of the realm of possibility, especially as we don't own our home and our girls are not in school for another 18 months plus. Now, if we ended up buying our home here, which we do love for many reasons, which I detailed in the past and we'll talk about in the future, I'd be surprised if it's, if we didn't seek a home out there sometime in the next 20 years. Something would be wrong if you check in with me at, at age 60, and I'm not even either living in California 
um, or on the verge of moving out there. Now, what do I love about California? I'm going to list a few things out. I'm going to give you seven reasons why I love California. Number one, which I touched on, the weather. Listen, the Northeast has about 25 truly optimal days a year at most. Now, by optimal, I mean 65 to 80 degrees with low humidity and sunshine. Now, you get half of them sometime in late spring, in like the May-June range, and the other half sometime in early fall, in September or early October. Now, outside of that, it's either rainy, snowy, too humid, too hot, cloudy, or just fucking freezing. Now, in California, you get these picture-perfect days three-quarters of the calendar year. So the weather's number one reason for me of why I love California. Number two, the food choices. Yes, the Northeast, the pizza. I love pizza. I could have pizza every day of the week if it were healthy. The bagels are awesome. And the Italian food, due to the cultural influences around here, is top-notch. But in California, you get great artisanal food, a breadth of healthy options, and bomb Mexican food. It's hard to eat healthy um, the other thing about just eating in California, it's hard to eat healthy rather than a meal here or there. In California, if you wanted to eat out and eat healthy, I feel like you could do it for multiple days in a row. New York, there's just like, I don't know, just the, the choices that are thrown in front of you are not as healthy consistently as California, even though the people are fit. So that's number two. So, the, the, so number one, the weather. Number two, the food choices. Number three, very simply, the palm trees. What a fantastic visual that I associate with paradise. Whenever I'm flying into California, I look down at, at the landscape and there's the beautiful palm trees. Pretty simply, number three is the palm trees. Four, being close to water. Close to water now, live about a mile away from water in the New York area. Uh, would be close to water in California, a must-have for me. Number five, uh, so, so the weather, the food choice, the palm trees, the water. Number five, being three hours behind, being on Pacific time, uh, the Pacific time zone. There's something cool about knowing that your time zone closes out the day. And I just find that the country does align somewhat with time zones. I feel like the day starts earlier on the West Coast, but you don't even care getting up that early because it's just so nice out. But the biggest thing for me with the time difference is as a, as a sports fan is the sports experience. Now, I've had two different football Sundays on the West Coast on beautiful October days. I mean, once was my friend's wedding day and another was the day after an, uh, um, another friend's wedding. And it's just awesome. You know, the start football at 10 a.m. Is, is just fantastic because on the East Coast, especially as we get older and have kids, there's just too much anticipation. I mean, you could be up like in some cases like seven hours before football starts. On the West Coast, you're barely up. You're dressed and have breakfast and boom, the games are on. But even better than that is the, the, uh, the busy early slot uh, for football games, the 10 a.m. start time, one, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. It's over. By 1 p.m. Pacific time. And the, the sparse late slot where you don't have uh, a ton of games anymore uh, and you could tune in uh, just kind of sporadically, it allows you to enjoy the entirety of the day. And just when you, you're, you know, you're settling in for dinner at around 6 or 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, you can catch most of the, of the, of the night game, the primetime game. And it's not just for football. Um, the final four. At 38, I have to prop my, my eyeballs open with, with, with toothpicks at this stage to watch the second half of the doubleheader on Final Four weekend or, um, or, or the, um, the championship game. And on the West Coast, the first game was, was on. We were there one time for the Final Four, and it was on as we showered and we got ready for dinner, and we caught the end of the second game once we were out. 
And it's just surreal to watch like a Lakers home game at night when the world is still bustling around you and be done and be able to watch the entire thing and go to bed at a reasonable hour. So the sports watching, I, I know I, I spent a lot of time on that. So the weather, food choices, palm trees, being close to water, being three hours behind because of the sports. Uh, the last two things for me are the people. People are happier, friendlier, less rushed, and, more, and mostly progressive. They're progressive here, but people are in bad moods. They don't make eye, to eye contact most of the time. And uh, the last thing is the landscape. You know, I've been to the majority of states in this country, and there's no drive more picturesque than California. The California highways, even just from the airport to wherever you're going, the palm trees, the fresh air, the mountains, the smell of water, it's just a mood enhancer. Listen, California, those are my seven reasons. It it isn't perfect. My mom used to dissuade me as a kid uh, with scaring the hell out of me that there'd be earthquakes. and now there's a lot of wildfires and, and, the, and the, with climate change, I mean, it doesn't rain a lot. But I got to believe as a New Yorker, you're more likely to die at the hands of a terrorist attack than a Californian from an earthquake. Even back in the, in the day when my mom scared the hell out of me in the late 80s and early 90s, New York City was a war zone as far as crime. So there's probably still a uh, risk to living in New York City versus living on, on the West Coast in, in uh, L.A., San Diego, you name it. Um, so California love is real for me and for Jen. So up next, a quick 2020 Democratic primary preview. Okay, so coming up this week is Super Tuesday in the Democratic primary, which as I mentioned um, on a recent episode is a night that holds over a dozen primary contests across the U.S. Now in the last few days, the field surprisingly thinned out. It was just announced that Mayor Pete ran out of funding and dropped out of the race. Uh, Amy Klobuchar and Tom Steyer had done as well. So now it's a four-horse race. It's Elizabeth Warren, Mike Bloomberg, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Which And that, and that uh, foursome features two center-right guys on the Democratic spectrum in, in Biden and Bloomberg, and two further left in Warren and Sanders. And look, much like the ebbs and flows of this race from a poll perspective, my opinion has evolved and changed throughout as well. Now, early on last year, as the field was manifesting, I was uh, all Bernie. Then, then I moved to Elizabeth Warren, then Bernie. But now, I think I'm back to Warren. Now, as I recent, I said recently, I wasn't into I, I wasn't into I, I was more into Bloomberg. But as I learned uh, more about him and his treatment of female employees at Bloomberg and then NDAs and just saw him get his ass handed to him on the debate stage. I mean, the bloom is off the rose. No pun intended. When it comes to Mike Bloomberg. And I wasn't even that offended. I'm still not offended by the whole stop and frisk thing. But he's just kind of losing his luster as a candidate, in my opinion. He's trying to buy his way through the race. Um, I just don't know if I trust that he's genuinely progressive and going to really care about more than just an issue or two. And, and granted, the issues that he does care about are, are big ones to me, like guns and the environment. But nonetheless, um, I'm less into Bloomberg. Now with Biden. Basic bitch Biden, as I've, as I've coined him, I wasn't into the idea of him and was getting a bit tired of his, I used to be able to piss and hit a target 20 feet away shtick about his past and what he got done and his, his, uh, his, uh, his cliche expressions. However, I heard his speech after winning the South Carolina primary the other few nights ago and know his influence among uh, voters of color. Um, I'm starting to come around on him a little. All right, I'm not sold yet, but if he got the nomination, which I said from the beginning, I would vote for him. Then on the other side with Bernie, well, I love what he stands for. At times, I think he needs to refine his message a bit in order to both 
accomplished galvanizing young people while also not freaking the hell out of the moderates and independents and left-leaning uh, Republicans. So um, at the end of the day, with the New York primary almost two months away, Elizabeth Warren is who I would vote for today. I like what she stands for, man. I really do. I think she's incredibly bright, and she is one hell of an orator and debater. Well, I, you know, well, I don't think that, that the core Trump base would drink her Kool-Aid, and she, but she would tear his ass apart on the debate stage and make it hard for anybody at a certain point left on the political spectrum to not see her as a better option, smarter, and a better presidential candidate. So that's my take on the field right now. As, as we uh, approach Super Tuesday, a uh, quick delegate snapshot. Bernie is slightly ahead with 60, while Biden has 54. But as far as the popular vote, vote uh, Biden leads by, by about five points. So those two guys are neck and neck. Warren has a tough hill to climb, and Bloomberg an even tougher hill to climb. Now, Nate Silver's 538, which you can certainly take with a grain of salt, um, has a 17% chance for Biden and Bernie, respectively. But the best chance that nobody winning the delegate margin enough to not have the DNC sway the election. And what would that mean? Well, similar to what we saw in 2016, but rather than Hillary, Biden would be the nominee. And I know he is stating uh, the case of electability, but I have major reservations of him winning against Trump in a general election. And if he does win, if he somehow wins the presidency and we can get this, this incompetent imbecile out of office... I fear that Biden's going to be a one-and-done uh, president, one-term. Uh, one-term president for the first time, uh, like, you know, obviously, if he beat out Trump, Trump would be a one-term president. But before that, we haven't seen that since George H. Bush in the early 90s. But uh, Super Tuesday should make things a bit more clear. The picture will crystallize a bit, but a lot more to come. So pop-offs next. Pop-off number one. I hate duvet covers. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them with a burning fucking passion. Listen, as we get ready for this next kid, we have been nesting and doing a lot of just random tasks around our house, cleaning and organizing. And as far as very physical tasks, I want to be the good husband and let my nine-month pregnant wife uh, minimize as much strenuous physical activity as possible, when we're, especially when we're dividing and conquering tasks. And uh, she already tries to take on too much physically. I have to tell her to sit down a lot of times to just to just just relax. I mean, she threw part of her back out. I think the first pregnancy with Eloise because she was she just likes to get stuff done. She's very efficient and she's she has a motor <coughs> on her when it comes to tasks. But let me tell you something about putting on a duvet cover. Um, putting on a duvet cover, which is what I did, is a strenuous activity. It sucks. It took me no joke fifteen minutes earlier this evening doing it. And what's the fucking point? You know, we can buy blankets and quilts that have stitched fabric around a, a soft bag or feathers or whatever the hell you want already. And why do we need to do it ourselves? This is like fondue for bedding, only worse. Fondue will be a rant for another day, but at least this is, this is uh, you know, fondue is social or romantic at times. The duvet covers, they suck. Not my cup of tea at all. With a duvet, abolish them. Abolish them all. Who the fuck needs them? Done with duvets. Pop off number two. This is more of an observation, actually not an angry one, I promise. Now, I don't think there's a name for this, but there's a phenomenon that is categorized by two very opposing examples. So for lack of a better expression for now, this is a daylight pivot. I'm going to call this, this phenomenon a daylight pivot. Now, what do I mean by this? So this weekend, 
This past weekend ended with us going out to dinner to a Japanese hibachi place in our area with good friends of ours and their almost three-year-old daughter. So um, I hope all of you listening know hibachi as it's a Japanese-style meal where they cook in front of you and the table surrounds this big um, cooktop in a U-shape. So it was the sixth of us uh, meeting for an early dinner with toddlers at around 5 p.m. Now, this was blissful because Eloise got a rare nap in which she takes basically one now out of 75 freaking days. But she actually napped uh, for this meal, and we had a nice meal. We had some, some sake from me, which I'm a huge fan of, some good laughs, um, just, just got to catch up with, with, with these friends of ours. We had some dipping sauces, the plate juggling, the, the fried ice cream, the, the, uh, the fire volcano and the fire show and all the, the, the loud noises and the, the, the spatula banging. But we started this dinner at 5 p.m. We left right after 7. Uh, but this time of the year, 5 p.m. is actually starting to get decently light, uh, starting to stay decently light out. Um, but 7 p.m. is pitch black, and this restaurant, that seems to be the case with a lot of hibachi restaurants, had no windows or very minimal windows. And it, it's it's one of these phenomenons that happens like when you just kind of go outside, you're like, oh, man, I, I expected – like not rational to be light, but it's almost jarring that it's dark out and that the that went from daylight to, to just night, uh, what felt like so quickly. And the phenomenon happens on, on, on this one end, mostly outside of summer months, but when you are in a place with no windows or limited windows and come outside and – the other side of it, where you go inside a, a, a place that's dark and come out to light or, or morning, is limited to nightclubs, strip clubs, and casinos. You know, like Varsity Blues, when they have that bender and realize their teacher's a stripper, then they get their ass kicked in the football game the next day because they're hungover. So casinos, I think, are actually the one place where you can experience both ends of this phenomenon. But I guess this is a commentary recognizing this, but also asking anyone out there, is there a name for this? You know, I need to come up with something. I mean, daylight pivot sounds sounds too lame. Pop off number three. Here's a burning question. What's the actual point of bathroom attendance? Now, Jen and I are, are massive Kirby Enthusiasm fans, and uh, one of the, the main funny storylines of this past week's episode was, was just around the bathroom attendant. And shout out to Jets fans, by the way, and our misery. In spite of my defense that things aren't as bad as the narrative out there, there's a lot, of, a lot of funny Jets commentary on that episode. But as far as bathroom attendance, this had me thinking. You know, I always saw it as a way for a club or a bar, uh, event venue, or restaurant to squeeze money out of patrons. But as I think about it, how much profit can that, the place actually pull in with, with, with having bathroom attendance? I mean, do these people do other tasks? And is it a perk to get some, some extra tips in the bathroom? I mean, that feels unlikely. And what I actually think the point is, is to be a deterrent to nefarious activity in the bathroom. Drugs, sex, vandalism, fighting. Is that what it is? I mean, maybe I'm a day late and a dollar short on this. No pun intended. But shit, light bulb moment for me. Laugh if you want. So I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking and I'm, I'm concluding that the point of bathroom attendance is to turn against nefarious activities. Pop off number four. Now my gym, which creates a lot of content for this show, like many gyms, has the same people typically going at the same time slots, including me. People are creatures of habit. This is no different when applied to a gym setting. Now, my buddy Jason and I used to work out together across a few different gyms in our 20s. We had a great time working out, and we by, we, we would name uh, a lot of these folks that were creatures that we, people that we would see all the time, and we, and we called them gym characters. And they'd be named after pop culture figures, <coughs> celebrity doppelgangers, or just exaggerated physical descriptors. 
Now, we had a ball with this. We really did. And um, one char- character at my current gym, you know, e- even though I go to the gym now solo for years, um, in my head, I have I have nicknames for probably like like at least like a dozen different different gym characters over the years. And there's one guy at my current gym. I, 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 I call him Grandpa Guido. The dude is absolutely classic. He's at the gym every morning. First thing. There's mornings I've had to go to I've had to go to the gym to get a workout and at 5 a.m. He's there. I generally show up to the gym at around uh, 6.15, 6.30. And usually it's the tail end of his workout. Um, so or so I, it's either the tail end of his workout or I see him in his car, which I'll get to. But he's about this 75-year-old, 80-year-old guy, long limbs and a big muscular frame with tattoos. He kind of walks with like a, like a hunchback. I get the sense that he's um, Italian-American, maybe he's Puerto Rican or some sort of Hispanic white. But he wears this the, the same exact outfit every single day. These long black Adidas pants that are like oversized and a long sleeve black V-neck that he rolls up to his elbows. Now, he, he, he uses the cardio machines. He lifts. Um, he seems to make sarcastic, jovial comments to those he knows. Um, I haven't engaged him yet, so I'm not on this list. But the best thing about this guy is, is this. He sits in his car, which is this gigantic Mercedes sedan. That would be like, you know, I, I, I guess it's like a, I don't know, like a five series, like uh, I'm, I'm not a five series, but like a, um, a giant Mercedes sedan for about 20 minutes after his workout with the engine idling. And I know this because early on, before I knew better, I would wait out his parking spot and the guy wouldn't fucking move. So now I realize I can't waste my time. But Grandpa Guido, you know, I, I just don't get you. You're, you're wealthy enough to be a member of, of a kind of a bougie gym and, and drive a Mercedes. Like, why the hell are you up so damn early working out? He's got, he's got to be retired. I mean, even on the weekends when the gym opens at 7 a.m., he's still one of the first damn guys at the gym. So Grandpa Guido's who I call this character. I don't know what his deal is. Again, maybe like Tom, the dad without the car seats, I have to ask him. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback is incredibly valuable as I grow this podcast. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.